Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Hey friends, Nina here. This week, we're continuing our deep dive into the Michigan murders. We're talking with Detroit-area filmmaker Andrew Templeton about his upcoming project set in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti during the summer of 1969. While his project is not centered on John Norman Collins, Andrew knows a lot about what was happening that summer and was kind enough to sit down with me for an interview. My name is Andrew Templeton. I'm a filmmaker from Detroit. For the past five years, I've been working on a documentary film with the working title, 1969 Killers, Freaks, and Radicals. So tell me about the 1969 project. So the film is about the late 1960s in uh, Michigan University towns of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm sure your listeners know, for three summers, young women would vanish and then be found murdered on the outskirts of town. Most of these murders are still officially unsolved, even though John Norman Collins was convicted of the final murder in these cases. But in addition to that, there was a lot of social turmoil going on. There were campus riots, protests against the Vietnam War, just a huge generational conflict, young people beginning to discover drugs and sex in new ways. In particular, young women's place in society was changing pretty rapidly. It was only few years before this, that young women were going to college, they would be essentially kept under lock and key by dorm mothers and curfews. And it was felt that the school had a responsibility to act in place of a parent for young women. So it was a very strange time and place to be growing up. And I wanted to tell that story in addition to the story of the crimes themselves. So looking at the crimes themselves and the man who is thought to be the, the, the killer, in these cases. Tell us a little bit about John and what he was up to in 1969. So, yeah, I mean, as far as what uh, John Collins was up to in 1969, that was the height of the killings. They were happening more and more rapidly. But in addition, I think something that's been a bit overlooked in some presentations of this topic is the extent of his criminal behavior outside of the murders. He seemed to start with petty theft sometime in the years prior, but by 69, he was, you know, committing burglaries, robbing places on campus, his old frat house, doing credit card scams at department stores, stripping and reselling motorcycles, and the list goes on. I was really surprised myself by the extent of it in the paperwork that I have. It goes beyond what I think you could attribute to youthful hijinks. Collins and a few of his close friends seemed to feel like entitled to anything they came across. You know, interestingly, two of these close friends later were given immunity for the property crimes in exchange for testifying against Collins at the Bynum trial. So the accomplices were his college roommate, uh, Arnie, and then Andrew that he went out to California with, correct? Yeah, and that's, that was covered pretty extensively in the media at the time. I believe Andrew Manuel also was a roommate, at least for the last couple months they lived in that house. But Collins and Manuel in particular had burglarized some houses in the western suburbs of Detroit. 
at least that we know about. And um, I, I don't know. I, I think it speaks to me. It speaks to some kind of point of view they had. I've read it isn't uncommon for serial killers to sort of work their way up from petty crime. And I mean, Collins didn't need the money. He, you know, worked several jobs in addition to these scams that he was doing. And he didn't come from a wealthy background, but from what I understand is, you know, his school was paid for and he had money. I think anybody who knew him pretty closely knew that he wasn't the totally clean cut all American guy that I think is sometimes portrayed. I agree that the the papers and the news tended to portray him as this handsome, all-American, good-looking, nice kid, Catholic background. And if you scratch the surface even the littlest bit, you could see that that wasn't accurate. He was not a good guy. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think anybody who was close to him seemed to know that or, or knew he was up to some criminal activity anyway. He had a lot of stolen goods that they found him with. I mean, he even kept some of the stolen motorcycles at his, his uncle's house. And of course, his uncle was a state policeman. There was a boldness to it, too. I, I think he thought he could get away with anything. So we've got John Norman Collins being painted as sort of this all-American boy next door. But then we look at the women that were victimized, allegedly, by him in, in these cases. And how did the press or the community treat these female victims? very, very important to me to try to treat them with respect in the film. And uh, sometimes they were treated quite poorly by the press at the time. That's particularly the case with Marilyn Skelton. You know, she was a teenager and she was kind of more in a hippie scene and mixed up with drugs a little bit. But that was kind of used to sort of villainize her or make her somehow culpable for what happened to her, which is just awful to read. You compare that to some of the other girls, and they would be described kind of fully opposite. They said, oh, well, this was a good girl. It shouldn't have happened to them. But I feel like even in that, there's a sort of implication that there are then bad girls who somehow brought this upon themselves. That's another thing I've been told, particularly by a couple women who were young at the time, that that was not as uncommon an opinion as you would hope. Right, that some victims were more deserving of sympathy or less deserving of sympathy based on their lifestyle choices. Yeah, in general, too, just the idea that from what we know about these crimes, most or, well, many of these women seem to have gotten in the car or on the motorcycle willingly. And I think even that was kind of used as a little bit of character assassination. Like, well, if they were a good girl, they wouldn't have done that. But something I really hope I can emphasize in the films is just how random these crimes were. So many young women in the area were terrified, and it could have happened to any of them. Collins seemed to nearly always be an opportunist. He'd repeatedly ask women to get in his car or on his bike until somebody relented. And even women I've talked to who took a ride with him survived it. Talk about there was a big societal pressure they felt to go along with what a forceful man wanted. To and, be nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. One woman I talked to knew him socially and already, frankly, suspected him as a creep. And even still, it was a friend of her boyfriend. And she felt, I think the way she described it to me was she was brought up a good Catholic girl and she should do what they wanted. There were several women who came to police after his arrest and reported that he had raped them. I think these things just weren't talked about back then. You know, one girl was worried about 
her father's heart condition. One of the reports I have, the girl says her own friends, when she tried to talk to them about the assault, said, well, it wasn't rape because you stopped resisting. (sighs) Wow. That's horrifying. So one of the things that you're doing with the movie, you've talked about speaking with survivors and, and speaking with people in the community, is that you are trying to reach out to people from that community that lived in the area at the time. And I think that's really important to telling the story is getting the perspective of people who lived through it. Can you tell listeners the best way that they can get in contact with you if they or someone that they know has you know memories or a connection to the case from 1969? Right now, we'd love to hear from anybody. We really want community voices of women who were young at the time and who were essentially the targeted demographic and who were worried about these crimes. They don't have to have any direct personal connection to the events, but we really are hoping to show a cross-section of different people who lived in the county at the time. Maybe somehow by proxy, it can help give victims a voice to hear from you know, many women who just as easily could have been victims themselves if things had played out differently. So probably the best way to get in touch is either our Facebook or our Instagram account. You can find that at Instagram.com slash 1969movie or Facebook.com slash 1969documentary. And And I'll uh, put those in the show notes so that listeners can easily access them also. Listeners, we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you're feeling your best, you can do great things. But sometimes, life brings you down and you might feel overwhelmed or out of step. Working with a therapist to sort through your feelings and emotions can help. When I was struggling with a challenging situation, BetterHelp was there for me and helped guide me through a difficult period in my life. If you're considering therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, affordable, and entirely online. You fill out a brief questionnaire and are matched with a licensed therapist. If you want to live your best life, therapy can help. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gone today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash gone. Could I talk just briefly about the victim's families in case they want to reach out? Absolutely. So I did want to say that I've tried to reach out to victim's families via phone messages you know, it's hard to know if you got through sometimes because I won't badger the families, but I guess if anybody who knew any of the girls hears this podcast and would like to speak with me, please reach out. I don't want anybody to feel blindsided or that they haven't been given the opportunity to speak on the topic. So sending a message the same way via Facebook or Instagram would be a a great way to get in touch. And I think that's important. There's a fine line between, like you said, badgering the families and making sure that families have the opportunity to get their voice heard should they want to participate. Exactly. That's what I felt. Again, I just don't want anybody to be blindsided. And if anybody has any just even general questions to talk to me about my intentions with the project, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about that. My mom graduated from high school in 1969 and chose not to go off to college because she was so concerned about what was happening in the Ann Arbor Ypsilanti area that she actually chose to go to the local community college for her first two years instead. So it definitely was weighing on the minds of women in the area. And she lived in Berkeley, which was nowhere near 
Ann Arbor Ipsy. It was just the thought of being on a college campus with all of this going on that she was like, no, I think I'm going to pass. That's one of the things that drew me to this is this was a national story at the time. There was a lot of press coverage from all over. People even beyond the Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area were affected by it. I guess one of the odd wrinkles in it is that the Manson murders took place the same week that John Norman Collins was arrested. And I think that was so sensational on its face and involving celebrities and Hollywood and everything that the media moved on to that. And this case has largely been forgotten compared to the sort of press coverage it it had gotten at the time. I agree. I think the Manson murders absolutely overshadowed what was happening with this case because it was so shocking and involved so-called notable people. Yeah, and in it, you know, it also speaks, I think, to some of that societal stuff going on. The Manson murders were much more, in a certain way, what people expected from a brutal murder, that it would be crazed hippies and outsiders, you know, from public life, where, of course, in this case, it turned out to be a state policeman's uh, nephew who yeah. was... I guess, like we said, he wasn't as clean cut as he appeared, but from a distance, he appeared quite clean cut. Certainly wasn't any counterculture or anything like that. So one of the other things that you're doing is centering the community in the story. We talked a little bit about how women were emerging from traditional roles, but they still had like a a house mother at college and were, were pretty strongly supervised at the time. Can you expand on that a little bit? A big part of it is painting a picture at the time. Like I mentioned, there was just such rapid societal change during the 60s. And I've always been a huge fan of films and music from that era. Looked at a lot of film footage from that time period. I think it's important to get a whole cross-section of the community at the time. I mean, the people I interviewed years ago for this movie was John Sinclair. He's a pretty notable activist and uh, poet. Do you know his story? I'm not familiar with John Sinclair. People from the area or or from that time period probably know him. Famously, he was arrested for minor marijuana charge and got some kind of outrageous sentence. And John Lennon and a bunch of other notable musicians held a freedom rally for him in the early 70s and got him out of prison. And that's the origins of Ann Arbor's hash bash that goes on every year still. I guess I'm bringing him up because, for example... I interviewed him just to try to get that perspective. He doesn't have anything to do or any direct connection with the murders, but he has a connection to the time period and and how people like him reacted to it and what life was like. By the same token, I've tried to interview young women from the time, police officers, people from the media, people from the counterculture, because it's not a biography of John Norman Collins. It's more of a biography of a time and place. I like that. I I like that you're centering the community and what it went through rather than centering it on the killer and what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the killer, you have corresponded with John. I have. I've corresponded via letters. I will say he's been totally polite and reasonable with me and he never had to respond at all. As far as the murders go, he's going to say very little about them and I doubt he ever will. And in that regard, the letters, I don't think will be a huge part of the movie, because as I said, this isn't a biography of him. 
it kind of reminds me an old state police detective said to me recently when I mentioned that he says, yeah, I don't think he deserves a biography, which I, I tend to agree with. But I will say that corresponding with him gives you a glimpse into his personality and you can clearly see how someone like him would have a, or could have had a magnetic or charismatic quality in his youth. He uses emojis and a lot of jokes and colorful phrases. It's been an unusual experience, but I've tried to be very fair and direct with him about my intentions, and I think he understands that. So now that he's here in Jackson, he's no longer housed up in Marquette, do you think that you might go see him? Yeah, I I need to write him another letter and ask him if he wants to do that. I'm certainly up for it now that he's down this close. I live in in the Detroit area now. Whether he's up for it or not, I I don't know. I'd be curious to see him. I, I know that you're not centering the story on him, and I'm and I'm I'm glad of that. But I feel like he's so integral to the story that it might be an interesting thing to do. And and I hope you'll keep me posted on that. Now, looking forward, you, you said that John doesn't want to talk about the case against him or against his accomplices, but. How do you think, or what do you know about the case as it stands today? They still have four unsolved murders and a whole lot of other pettier crimes from that time that are unprosecuted. The petty crimes are all must all be long past, uh, what's that term? Um, Statute of limitations has run out. Yes. And also, like I said, his closest associates were given immunity for some of that at the time. I will say, as I've researched this again and again, I found references to the potential involvement of accomplices in the murders themselves, even. I mean, this is something that's in the historical record, statements from police at the time and the media at the time. And uh, I do think there's a distinct possibility someone else may have been involved in some of these crimes. But, uh, you know, you want to be really cautious here because it's, it is speculation. It's never been proven. Right. And only one of the cases is solved. But the film will definitely explore that a bit because, you know, in my research, it was very much in the minds of investigators and media at the time. That's another aspect that's been a little bit overlooked. You know, there were people close to John that were interviewed quite extensively and seemed to have some knowledge of his crimes anyway. Now, as far as I understand it, most of the evidence still exists in the property room at state police. And um, I think with modern technology, some of these things could be clarified. I just think even beyond accomplices or Collins or anything, I think these are questions worth answering. The public you know, has a right to know more about what happened back then. I agree. But John's two closest friends, Arnie and Andrew, are both deceased, correct? Yes. They both died within the last 10 years, I believe. Okay. And do you know, did they have criminal records beyond their involvement with John? Andrew Manuel may have. He was kind of a lifelong criminal scam artist type guy, as far as I know. The other guy, Arnie Davis, not anything that I'm aware of. But, you know, he certainly got immunity for some property crimes at the time when he testified against John at trial. Beyond that, I don't really know. But I I guess my point of view is just, I guess, in terms of justice, whether somebody's alive or dead, it's something that could potentially be clarified. And, um, of course, with the whole Gary Leiterman conviction in the Jane Mixer case, as uncertain or murky as that can kind of feel, that was apparently an example of someone else being convicted for one of these crimes that was long attributed to Collins. So I think there's a lot of murkiness that I think could potentially be cleared up. 
I know the state police, uh, Michigan State Police has a dedicated cold case team now. I know you've talked with them and they work with, you know, the assistance of college students in criminal justice programs to get some uh, fresh eyes on old files. I've been told they're reviewing the John Collins cases soon, but I haven't heard any updates. So That's interesting. I really feel like rather than reviewing the files, reviewing the evidence and doing, you know, enhanced DNA testing with today's technology might be the best course of action for any remaining evidence in the cases. Although the victims were outside, it was the 60s, they weren't collecting evidence the way we do now. It's possible there isn't any biologicals to test. It's possible. I'm just not really sure. It was reported in the Detroit Free Press in 2019. They did test some Alice Kalem DNA evidence that linked conclusively to John Collins. That was in 2008, I believe. For whatever reason, they decided not to go ahead with the case against him then. But obviously, the potential still exists. Yes. I do think that Collins is going to end up dying in prison, which is exactly where he belongs based on yeah, his conviction I, yeah. in the vitamin case. I think he's exhausted all of his opportunity. I mean, I know he's exhausted all of his legal appeals and whatnot, and then he's tried several ways to get into Canada where they have a, a bit of a more yes. lenient criminal justice system they where he, he could potentially get parole. But the chances of that happening are slim to none, which is probably for the best. It well, is. definitely for the best. It is. But I think that, uh, and I touched on this briefly in the episode, that I do think that if Collins was ever in a position where he could be getting out, that California would step in and pick him up for the crimes there because they had the best evidence for that case. You would hope so. That's a really interesting aspect as well, is, is if anything, if you read all these cases, that that's probably the most damning one against Collins. It's hard to believe he wouldn't have been convicted in California because of the wealth of evidence they had against him, including physical evidence. Yeah, they had him pretty dead to rights in California for that case. And I think Michigan made the right decision in keeping him here and allowing him to be prosecuted here. Do you have um, an idea of when your project will be complete and when my listeners could maybe look to watch it? Yeah, we're kind of in the, I would say we're roughly in the closing stages. As I said, we still want to get some interviews with people, especially community members, people, you know, who were young women at the time. We're still always open to talk or do interviews with anyone working on a final edit right now. Shortly following this episode coming out, we'll have a Kickstarter launch that'll have a trailer and information about the film. And we're hoping that that can kind of help us get across the finish line as far as post-production costs. And uh, I do want to say this is a totally, this has been a totally independent production, local crews and colleagues, and, you know, we want to keep it that way. So we're hoping that the public will have something to view by summer. Okay. As far as a completed film. And please send me the link to that Kickstarter when you get it. I'm, I'm happy to not only kick in, but to share the link. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Like I said, we want to keep this independent and uh, not uh, sensationalized. Yeah. So. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners before we wrap up? Just that I appreciate the support. And, um, you know, we really would love to hear from you. If you have any connection to the victims or their families and, um, and you wanted to talk to me, please reach out. And also, we, we really would love to hear stories from members of the community, especially young women that don't have to have any direct connection to the events, but this was very much a part of their life. And 
we want to get across the sense of how it felt to grow up back then. And the best way to reach out would be either our Facebook or Instagram account, which um, I believe Nina will put in the, in the link, right? Yep, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, so the best way to reach out is our Facebook or Instagram account, and uh, we, we would really love to hear from you. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to your project. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm a big fan of the show, so it's, it's great to be able to talk about my project with you. It's going to be a good year for sure. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew.